Welcome to Commons and Chronicles, the podcast where we talk about all the best creative commons and reusable open game license content. If you need resources for your creative writing, game design, or you just love lore, Commons and Chronicles is for you. Hi everyone, Klaatu. This is the second episode in the series about the Earth's core, or Pellucidar, as the locals refer to it. And in the uh, previous episode, you'll recall that I mentioned the origin of this idea of there being a hollow world, as provided to us by Jules Verne in his, I guess, landmark book, Journey to the Center of the Earth. To me, all of Jules Verne's books were landmark, because they're just so pure science fiction or science fantasy and and it's so early on, you know, it's not even the 1900s yet, and the guy is writing these stories about people taking rockets to the moon and boring to the center of the earth and finding fantastic lands. It's really, really cool to experience. If you've never read Jules Verne, I again encourage you to do so. So at the end of the previous episode on Pellucidar, I mentioned that there were Mahars, which are the sort of reptile creatures, or the reptile humanoids at the center of the Earth. There are their dutiful servants, the Sagoths, who are kind of like ape-like humans. And then right at the very end, I suggested that, by the way, there are actual humans, like traditional, recognizable humans. And indeed there are, and there are actually several, a couple of different varieties of humans in, in this world, in this setting. They are very often compared to... Native Americans in the book. He doesn't, Edgar Rice Burroughs, the author, doesn't make a huge, he does not belabor the point that these are are Native American tribes, but it is mentioned frequently enough that that's kind of what I certainly impose onto them. The other thing that you could impose onto these, and, and justly so, because it is, it is, he, he also uses this as a comparison sometimes, but you you could think of them as Stone Age humans. I just happen to think that Stone Age human, in, for my interest level, and I think, I would think for fantasy gameplay or even story development, I don't think there's a whole lot to work with in Stone Age is Stone Age culture. I could be completely wrong, and I know that there are some movies out there that that do do. Stone Age well. I think there's maybe one movie that does Stone Age well. But generally speaking, Stone Age is kind of like Stone Age, you know? It's like really, really old and not a whole lot of social structure set up yet. and There's just not a whole lot to work with. So giving it kind of tribal qualities, I feel, are a lot more... It's a lot more useful, for, for me at least. And there's an argument there that that's what that's what is intended, and then there's an argument that, no, it's really supposed to be more Stone Age. So you can kind of take at it, look at it from any angle that you want. But in reality, I think there might be room for both. Because there is a suggestion that because it is so tribal and everything is so kind of isolated, that some humans are more advanced than others. So you'll go to one region of Pellucidar and you'll find humans who are are truly living in a stone age without any knowledge really of, of metal or or fine woodwork or whatever and then you've got other humans farther out that that are more advanced and and have developed some technologies of some sort um some of them might 
use metal implements and so on. And then you've got in later stories that I won't really talk about because they're not public domain yet. But in later stories, you get a you get sense a sense of even of, of humans even further along in in Pellucidar, who are, are are more yet more advanced. So the humans speak a monosyllabic language. Uh, no, they're a noble-appearing race with perfect physiques. The men are heavily bearded, tall and muscular, the women small and graceful, with great masses of raven hair caught into loose knots upon their heads. Women wear a single robe of light-colored spotted hide, similar to a leopard skin, worn supported entirely about the waist by a belt or looped gracefully over one shoulder. Their feet are shod with leather sandals. The men wear loincloths of the hide of some shaggy beast, and long with long ends of which nearly touch the ground before and behind them and in some instances these ends are finished with strong talons of some beast uh, probably the beast from which the hide was taken they speak in their own language which is distinct from the sagoth language and so when they're speaking to sagoths they use sort of a third pigeon language uh, that both of the both the sagoths and humans use to kind of intercommunicate we spend a pretty good amount of time with the humans during the the two books that I'm discussing here, and you get a, a a good feel for for where they are in social development and so on. It's a little bit un un I would say inconsistent. There there are some some things about certainly Pellucidar the sequel to At the Earth's Core that maybe get a little bit confused about which humans are how far along and so on. So there, there's a little bit of confusion there. But one thing that is pretty universal across the, the the humans in in the at the center of the earth are that they have formalized beliefs on things like courtship and the afterlife. So, for instance, courtship: if a man bests another in competition for a woman, then the man who wins must either take the woman's hand and claim her as a a lover, or raise the woman's hand high into the into the air to release her from any obligation to him. If he does not do either of these things, then she is considered in debt to the man, the man's slave, until she is released by the man. This is official no matter what, but it's a lot more meaningful if it's done in public. And it's considered a great insult if you, for instance, defend a woman publicly and then don't do either of those two things. If you, if you simply defend her in public and then walk away, then you're, you've, you've basically created someone who is eternally in your debt, but that you, know, you want nothing to do with this person, and, and that's considered a huge insult. The afterlife consists of, uh, as, as is, I guess, pretty common, a good place and a bad place. So the afterlife, if, if you... Well, okay, so the, there's a flaming sea according to legend, upon which Pellucidar, the, the, the land at the Earth's center, floats. The, this flaming sea is called Melop-Az, that's M, or Molop-Az, M-O-L-O-P, and then A-Z, Az meaning river. All the dead buried in the ground go to Molop-Az, or I, I presume left unburied, go to Molop-Az. And they feel pretty certain about this because they've had to dig up people in the past, and they, they see that the body has been disassembled by little demons who dwell in the soil. 
and these little demons supposedly disassemble the person's body bit by bit and carry them down to Mullah Baz. So, if you don't want that to happen to someone, then you don't bury them, and, and the Anorak tribes people do not bury their dead. They place their dead high, high in the trees, where the birds may find them and bear them bit by bit to the dead world above the land of awful shadow. The dead world above the land of the awful shadow is something that I, I guess I'll speak to, or I'll, I'll mention later. I'll, there's not a whole lot to say about it, so I might as well say it now. But there is an internal moon, a, sort of a moon-like planetoid, at the center of the Earth, which floats, I assume, equidistant distant from, you know, sort of like in the in the middle of the of the of the sphere that is the center not the exact middle because actually in the exact middle is the sun which we'll also get to later on when we talk about the geography of of the center of the earth but but next to the sun i mean not like right next to it but you know up there with the sun is a moon it's a dead almost like tiny little planetoid and it floats in the middle of the center of the earth so if you can imagine well, I'll get into it all later. Point being, there's a moon. It's floating in the center of the Earth, a little bit offset from the center center of the Earth. And in so doing, it blocks the sun's light from a certain portion of the land. And this land is called the land of the awful shadow. And so it is assumed that this moon-like object is, for lack of a better word, heaven. And that's where the dead go. It's the land of the dead. That's what the humans believe about the afterlife. It's pretty simple, pretty straightforward. And and I guess you could call it kind of sociologically advanced, right? They've come up with these ideas, these the, the this aspect of culture. And there's not really a it, I would I would I would think that it's spread throughout a bunch of the different tribes of humans. I, I didn't get the sense that it, there were wildly different beliefs. I, I kind of got the sense that a lot of them share the same beliefs. And it would make sense, because actually a lot of the humans end up in the same, in the same situation together, whether, you know, what, regardless of what tribe they're from. And the reason for that is because the Mahars who, if you'll recall, are the superior life forms at the center of the earth, superior lizard people, the Mahars eat humans. They, they, they look at humans as we humans might look at um, deer or pork or pigs, I think this is what they're called, uh, and uh, other creature, tuna, tuna, people eat tuna, whatever, I don't eat any of these things, I'm vegetarian, but the, the things that people, you know, eat on the face of this planet is, is what humans are at the center of the planet. The Mahars believe that humans are, are dumb creatures that should serve the Mahars. They believe it's their, their God-given right, presumably, to, to to have dominion over the the land and the animals that are not mahar and so they they harvest they harvest humans and that is mainly what the humans that that's kind of their their purpose at the center 
at the at the earth's core that is what the what what humans that that's the role that they they serve there are a couple of different uh, tribes that we know about of humans there is the amaz a m o a m o z there's the sari the s a r i sari tribe there's the mezop tribe m e z o p or mezop i'm not sure which but that is from what i can tell unless it's a typo different from mozop as this is mezop and no as there's no river so mezop or mezop and then there's the anorak a n o r o c i think so those are the different tribes that we kind of know about and as i say if you read far far into the the book series then you'll find that there's actually quite a lot of different uh, regions i mean it's, it's a huge inner world is, is the thing to keep in mind here and if you if you read deep into it into the series you will find that there are a lot of different cultures and different tribes and even beyond tribes really arguably you get into actual civilizations but not within the public domain setting so the public domain setting is very tribal i prefer to think of it as native american i think edgar rice burroughs i think the intent of the book was kind of a cross between native american and stone age because he, he uses both terms quite quite frequently a couple of different regions of the Earth's core. One is called Futra. Now, I'm not sure if Futra is just a region, or rather, I'm not sure if it's just a city or the region. I do know that it is a city. It is the, um, for lack of a better point to latch onto, I would say that it was probably the capital city of the Mahar civilization. It certainly seems to be very important to the Mahar society, and their queen dwells there, so I'm assuming it's probably their capital. I believe it's also the region, maybe even just colloquially, you would just say we are in we are in Futra now, even though you're not actually in the city, but you're you're on the city's doorsteps, so you would say we're in Futra. There is Anarok, which of course is also a tribe. There's Sari, which of course is also a tribe. There's Amaz, a which is also a tribe. So a lot of the tribes, as you can tell, uh, apparently take their names after the region or vice versa you know this is the the land of amaz meaning this is where the people who call themselves the amaz the tribe of the amaz this is where they dwell that sort of thing so it's a mountainous region we know that amaz is mountainous with cliffs overlooking the darel az now you already know what az means and that means the sea or the river so darel az is the um the darel sea or the darel river whatever and then there's thoria which lies at the outer verge of the land of the Awful Shadow. And Thoria is quite interesting, and you'll find out why in a little bit. A couple of different people get actual names, and I'll go ahead and mention those names just so you can get a feel for names at the center of the Earth. There's Dian the Beautiful, who is an Amaz princess. She's quite a neat character and one that i feel like if the book had been a little bit longer we would have gotten to see a lot more of there are these hints of her being quite independent and quite uh, quite the fighter possibly 
and certainly very sneaky and and yeah, really smart, beautiful fighting Stone Age queen, really uh, princess, as the case may be. And and unfortunately, it, within the book, she gets quickly relegated to the the prize of the main character. So the main character sort of steps in and does something for her. And after a main character does something for a girl in, in many, many books, that means that she is now a secondary character. She's just the prize at the end of the book. So she kind of gets relegated to that. But um, certainly I think, I, I feel like a lot of the artwork that you'll see for the, at the center, at, at the Earth's core, and, and Pellucidar in general, really makes her out to be like this kind of strong, terrifying woman with a a pet tiger all it's a, that's a lot of the art that i've seen has her and a, a big cat and it's just so so cool and unfortunately unfortunately the books don't ever really capture what the art seemed to suggest which which is funny because in my memory that's what she was and then when i reread the book for this in prep for this episode i realized that she actually had a, a pretty small part but that's Dion the Beautiful, D-I-A-N, Dion the Beautiful. There's Dakor, which is the brother of Dion. He is the king of Amaz. So she's a princess because her brother is the king, not, not because um, she's the daughter of a king. And then, well, I mean, presumably she was the daughter of a king at some point. Uh, and then there's Gak, the hairy one. There's Jubal, the ugly one. He's from Amaz as well. There's Huja, the sly one, and Ja, a Mizop tribal leader. The the Mizops and Mahars, interestingly, live in peace, which is quite unique. Most human tribes are hunted by the Mahars, and many of them are, are consumed, eaten by the Mahars in mass. But the Mizops kind of discovered trade. The Mizops and the Mizops get very, very frequently referred to as Native Americans, both in, in look and in culture. So I think of all the the tribes, possibly the, the Mizop tribe is the, that's the really Native American style uh, civilization maybe of the book. But, but they, so they discovered that the Mahars needed things that the Mizops had. And the Mahars discovered that it was easier for them to just trade with the Mizops to get those things. I don't exactly remember what those things are, but, you know, things like, I don't know, lumber and, and clay, maybe, whatever you, you would need. And and so they, they actually trade with one another. They have a, a trade business going between the, the Mizops and the Mahars, and that is why the Mizops are spared. I mean, if you're just a Mizop walking along a forest and you encounter a Mahar, they may or may not recognize you as someone to spare, for instance. But in 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 mass, as the as a society, the the Mizops are spared from Mahar enslavements and certainly consumption because they've got a trade business, a, a fruitful trade business actually happening, which is kind of cool. And it it is, I think, a hint towards the idea that a lot of the Earth's core that we see in the book you know, during your first couple of books, uh, they're not necessarily, it's not, you're not seeing it all. You're, you're just getting a taste of, of a couple of different regions. So there is room for a lot more expansion here. And like I say, in, 
in books that are not yet in the public domain that does that that exists there are there are things that 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 are farther out from where we touched down at the earth's core initially that are a little bit more advanced and and I'll let you take that and run with it in your own time so there's um a couple of notes about the earth's core that I gathered and that is the the earth the, the core itself like how this all works how is it possible for there to be a center of the earth right a hollow center well i don't know that it is possible first of all but here's here's the here's the scientific assessment of this and i don't know if this was actually a theory back in the turn of the century like the 1900s i don't know if this was if this was an actual theory but but both Jules Verne and Edgar Rice Burroughs mention that it is a theory. So I get the sense, unless they're making it up, which they could be, and since Edgar Rice Burroughs is riffing off of Jules Verne's journey to the center of the Earth, he may also have, you know, taken the mythos behind these, you know, these fake scientist people in a story saying that there's a center, that there's a hollow core. I, I don't know. I didn't really bother looking it up, but supposedly it's a... It's a theory that, that this could happen, and here's how, supposedly, it could happen. So first of all, the inner world is called Pellucidar. That is the name of the inner world, the Earth's core. The, the people, if you go there, people are talking to you, they will refer to Pellucidar. And to them, that is the world, that is the existence, that is reality. There is no outer world, there's nobody dwelling outside of their world through layers and layers and layers of rock. That they, they are it. That that's the world. So. That's that's their perception, of everything. That you don't, for instance, get Mahars, crawling up to the surface to devour little children at night. You know, it's it's this is all that there is. It's just the it's Pellucidar. That is everything that exists. So the dead world, hangs forever between this, fake sun that exists at the Earth's core, above the land of the awful shadow. And it is the dead world that makes this great shadow upon a portion of Pellucidar, which, of course, is called the land of the awful shadow. And Perry, who is our, our primary guide to the scientific you know, to topography of Pellucidar, says that it's the moon of Pellucidar and it is a planet within a planet. It revolves around the Earth's axis, coincidentally with the Earth, and is thus always above the same spot within Pellucidar. In other words, because the Earth is rotating, Pellucidar itself and everything in it rotates. But everything in it is contained so it, it's not, there's, you know, the moon isn't rotating independently. It is rotating with the earth around the dead, dead center. And what is the dead, dead center? That's the, that's the sun. So the inner core has its own sun that casts noonday light all the time. Earth began as a nebulous mass, right? So it later cooled, and as it cooled, it started to shrink. And that's how all of this, this rock sort of came together and solidified. 
At length, a crust of solid matter formed on its outer surface, a sort of shell. Within it was partially molten matter and, a highly, exp and highly expanded gases. As it continued to cool, centrifugal force brought all the solid particles inside this, this sphere toward the outer crust. So in other words, you've got this, you've got a cloud that condenses into a ball, but it's got this molten center. It's still spinning, so all of this, this molten center, the, 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 the center of this thing starts to gravitate towards the, toward, you know, outward, toward the, toward what is, is already solidified. So it's, it's forming this hollow globe. All of that molten stuff reached a solid state, forming pretty much pellucidar. So that's the that's the hollow center of the Earth. But the superheat, the, the superheated uh, gaseous particles that remain in the center of the core became a luminous sun-like body condensed in the exact center of the hollow globe, and that is how. It came that there is a solid shell that we, you and I, dear listener, call the the earth, right, the ground, and then go down lots and lots of miles, and there's another, there, there's a hole. There's a big gaping sphere, empty sphere, at the center of which, at the dead center of that sphere, X, Y, N, Z axes, right, right in the center is this little miniature sun and it never sets it doesn't rotate it's at the very center of it all so if you if you went to the very center of the earth like the exact center of one origin point zero 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 that would be a sun so there's the sun and it's in the center of this hollow globe and it's always casting a pretty much a noonday light down on the on, on the on the ground around it that means that Pellucidar exists around the sun, such that if you're in Pellucidar, you could point up, and if you could see far enough, you would see people standing above you, right? So it's a bit of a ring world set up, where you, you look up, and there's somebody way up there at the top, you know, beyond the sky, way up there. Unfortunately... Or, or fortunately, maybe uh, Pellucidar is a big place. Like we're not talking, we're not talking about a small town that has a hollow, you know, the, a hollowed-out township in the middle of the earth. We're talking about a big chunk of of empty space. And so, if you look up, first of all, you'll see the sun. You'll be blinded. But, but even if you, you know, you you look, you look up somewhere, and and there's no, you can't see that far. It's it's not like you see another person at the, you know, and you're waving back at you or something. It's 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 a big place. The effect of this uh, is that it has no horizon. So as far as here's what David, the uh, narrator of the story, has to say: as far as the eye could reach out, the sea continued, and upon its bosom floated tiny islands, those in the distance reduced to mere specks, but ever beyond them was the sea, until the impression became quite real that one was looking up at the most distant point 
that the eyes could fathom. The distance was lost in the distance. That was all. There was no clear-cut horizon line marking the dip of the globe behind, below the line of vision. So th that that's difficult to imagine, but at the same time, you can kind of imagine it. Like if the world was inverted and you looked out, uh, you know, if you're standing on a, a flat plane and you just look out, rather than seeing a horizon, you would just kind of see the 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 plains, the fields, whatever, kind of ascending or or maybe just not ever descending, and then eventually it would just kind of fade into you can't see that far anymore, <laughs> and 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 there's the sky. And and it does have a sky. There there is an atmosphere because there's there are internal seas and rivers, and the the uh, the sun is heating them up, and so there's there's moisture in the air, and there are plants. You know, it's it's a it's a it's a whole world inside of the world, and so it's it's relatively familiar. Really, you might you might wake up in Pellucidar and not maybe necessarily immediately know that you were in Pellucidar except that it never gets night, and there's no horizon. Now, interestingly and puzzlingly, and I don't exactly know what they're going for here, there's not really time at the Earth's center. So, there's time, maybe, but no one ever can really feel that it is passing, and so you tend to get very lost and and disoriented in in terms of what time it is or how much time you've been doing something and there are several several places in the story where for instance David and Perry the two main characters get separated from one another and then they reunite and David says something like Perry I'm I'm back I'm sorry I I, I know that you must have been worried about me and Perry just says what are you talking about like, why would I be worried about you? We just got back from the the arena together, and um, and and now we're both here. It was like five minutes ago. What's what's up? And David is thinking it's been three months. So there are these weird disjointed moments where people lo have lost track of time and can't quite resolve that. And that, to me, kind of is confusing because surely you could just count how many meals you've had, right? I mean, let's see, I had five breakfasts. I got hungry five times, and I, so I ate five, five, uh, and I went to sleep five times. I got up, and I ate five things, and, and that is, that, that whatever that may be, there's a certain rhythm to, to that. And so even if it's very, very imprecise, like maybe there was a day in there that was only 18 hours long for you, or maybe there was only a day where it was only 10 hours long, but still, I mean, you, you, there's a certain rhythm to kind of just have the way that the body works. So I would, I would imagine that you could come up with some estimation of time. So are they saying that David left Perry had... It went to sleep five times, had some breakfast, had some lunch, had some dinner, and then came back and was comparing notes with Perry. And Perry said, "Oh yeah, I've been, I've, I haven't been to sleep yet at all. 
I, I haven't gotten tired. I haven't had to sleep. Haven't haven't eaten anything. So you just you never left, and and but David says no 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 I've I've slept like five times. So is that what they're saying, or is or is what they're saying that it's just really hard to track time? And I get I get mixed signals on that. There there are some times where where it seems like it's a perceptual thing, and there are other times where it does seem like Edgar Rice Burroughs is saying that there is literally no time at the or at the Earth's core. And it is all relative, so that you could go to a different part of the Earth's core and spend a month there and then come back and find that you've only been gone for a day. And I'm not really sure what his intent was. So, I, m my logic cells say that it can't be completely relative, because it just doesn't make sense, because the entire thing is still rotating and there's still a certain... You know, it, it's all sort of in the same, in the same gravitational sphere, literally. So I don't, I don't see how it could be relative. But it maybe you would want to play around with that. Maybe time is relative here. Maybe that's something you could mess around with in your own, in your own imagination, and and make it relative and come up with something interesting. Let's see. Uh, I've got some notes here on the region of Futra. So there's a dark and forbidding wood of giant arborescent ferns and primeval tropical forests, with huge creepers that drape in loops from tree to tree, dense underbrush, overgrown, uh, overgrow tangled masses of fallen trunks and branches among splendid-colored tropical blossoms. This forest gives way to plains, which give way to snow-peaked mountains and rivers. It is mostly land the inner the inner world it is there there is water there there are seas and rivers and things like that but mostly it is land uh, and they make a point of saying that 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 while there is some water the the relation you know the percentage of water to land is kind of reverse what it is up here on the surface we do get to go into the snow-peaked mountains they are well cold icy and dangerous Fog makes them uh, make, makes them difficult to navigate, uh, to say nothing of simply not walking off of a cliff. And then there are several beasts in the in the mountain regions, uh, or I should say there there is a beast in the mountain region that you have to look out for, and several iterations of that beast. We only hear about one icy creature in the mountains, but there seems to be a lot of them, so they're they're quite dangerous. And that's about everything I have on the on the topography, on the literal topography of Pellucidar. So now let's talk a little bit... Oh, I should say one more thing, actually. Humans have one special ability in Pellucidar, and that is that, it, like cats almost, if they are separated from their homeland, they can find their way back. Navigation is actually really difficult. Wayfinding is, is a difficult task in Pellucidar, because there there's nothing to navigate by in the sky. So if you're if you're used to navigation by stars, then that does not going to do you any good. Uh, compasses, I think, do work, but unfortunately their compass gets lost and or destroyed at some point, which also happens in Journey to the Center of the Earth, interestingly. the, the Their compass gets electrocuted or something, and the, the poles become reversed. So in both of the stories, the compasses get separated from or, or, or rendered a lot less useful 
and then the um, the heroes of the story have to kind of work their way around that. And the the way to work around that in Pelucidar is to find a native because they can navigate just kind of by sense. They just they just know. Now they cannot do that on the sea. If you go out to the sea, then they are useless. They can't figure out where to go. They will they will point one way and say, yeah, we should go that way. I sense my home's that way. And then five minutes later, they'll point a different way and say, yeah, that's it. You know, they, they, they're useless off of land. But on land, they have an innate ability of, of just navigating back to where they should be. I think that's plenty for you to think about in this episode, so I will continue with the beasts of Pellucidar in a later episode. Thanks for listening. I'll talk to you next time. that's it for this week's episode. Thank you very much for listening. My name is Klaatu. You can reach me uh, via email at klaatu at member.fsf.org. You can also usually catch me in IRC as not Klaatu. I'm on the Freenode Network. Thank you very much for listening, and I'll talk to you next time.